You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there. The hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the northern lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Palm Media and harness your creative side. Maybe even earn enough money. Enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher. I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. From First Paw Media, this is Canadian Challenge Tales. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you would give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe too. Your host is Dan Kirkup. Our executive producer is Robert Forto, created for First Paw Media. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Canadian Challenge Tales. I am joined today from uh, Craig Houghton, all the way from Fort St. James, B.C. How are you today, Craig? Good, thanks. Yes. Excellent. Appreciate you joining. I know... Uh, you're registered for Canadian Challenge this coming year, and we're going to talk lots about it. But um, for those that don't know you or uh, haven't heard of you before, can you tell them a little about yourself? Yeah, you bet. Uh, well, I'm uh, born and raised in Fort St. James, and I've been running sled dogs uh, my entire life. Uh, my father ran sled dogs. We had a little trap line, and we did lots of uh, family camping and stuff when I was a kid. And so it just like most mushers, you get addicted to it and you just continue on. Oh, that's excellent. So how early in life did you get started? Were you one of those ones that as soon as you could literally stand on a sled, you were out there with the dogs? Yeah, pretty much. I uh, I can't remember not running dogs. I can't remember not shoveling dog crap or feeding dogs or it's just always what we do. So yeah, it's been a just a lifelong thing. Excellent. And that's something you shared with with your dad or did you have some other family that uh, participated in dog sports as well? You know, it was, uh, it was mostly my dad. Um, I had some, some, one of my brothers did it a little bit and some of my sisters, but they never really got addicted to it. And so when they left home, that was the end of their dog mushing. Uh, but uh, you know, for better, or for worse, I can't, can't let it go. And I continued to run dogs and, and uh, my dad, he went and got himself too old now, so he got rid of his last couple dogs, but uh, we still talk dogs all the time every time I visit him. Oh, that's awesome. You know, it's always nice to see someone that's had, you know, a lot of experience growing up in the sport and to get a little bit different perspective on what's there. So was there a, a first um, dog sledding experience or, or a first race that, that you can share with us? You know, basically the first race I did was, uh, was here in town. And that was in the, um, I was probably 15 or 16. We'd been running dogs forever and we hadn't really raced. And so my dad actually and one of his buddies, um, a dog musher, John Douglas, they got together and they uh, they organized a, a race for, it was a race between here and another community from Fraser Lake. And we mushed over to Fraser Lake and back. And when that race went on for about three years. And I remember uh, running, um, one thing about the race is, my dad would uh, go the night before with his team on his old dog toboggan and to make sure the trail was solid. He didn't have a snow machine, 
So he'd put it in the trail with, with his dogs and then he'd race the same dogs next, the next day. And I would get so frustrated because, you know, my team would be fresh and he, and he still beat me. And, um, <laughs> yeah, so it took some learning and it took a little bit of, uh, you know, you're a 16 year old kid, you know, how come your old dad's going to beat you? And, uh, that trend went on for quite a few years, actually. He was saving up some of the secrets, wasn't he? <laughs> he was. Yes, he was. <laughs> what sort of distance was that race? Uh, that race was, um, it was about 120 miles. It was 60 miles across to Fraser Lake and then we'd come back 60 miles as well. Oh, nice. That's a good, that's a good distance. You yeah. Know, get out and get a couple of runs in without having to spend four days out on the trail. So yeah. from yeah. the, from your time in that first race at, at 15 or 16, uh, have you continued racing through, um, maybe not every year, but, uh, most years through it? And, and are there some races that, that stand out to you? Well, I certainly, um, pretty much race every chance I get. I, I missed a few years of racing when uh, I left home to go to school. I studied uh, in Victoria for a few years and then, but once I came back, um, right away I got dogs and, uh, started racing right in, right in the beginning in, in the late, um, I guess that was in the mid nineties, mid to late nineties. The, the big race in our area was there used to be one in Quenell, Wells Barkerville area. And so that's kind of what we're all shooting for because we didn't travel much at that time. And I was just out of school, so I didn't really have uh, a lot of resources to get around. And so that was a big race for us. We used to do a, a race in Quenell and that uh, was 200 miles long. And, you know, I, I was using my first year I came back from school, I was using some of my dad's old dogs and, um, it was a tough race. It was 40 below and it's really hilly through that part of the world. You're up in, uh, I guess in the Caribou mountains and it's a real huge snow belt. So if you get off the trail, you're in six, seven feet of snow. And, um, I remember getting into Wells and I was just totally frosted up at the, um, the checkpoint there. And I was just so, I was frosted up because I was running so much because the dogs were so slow and I was so far behind and I didn't want to keep all of the, um, I didn't want to keep all of the volunteers waiting. So the time I finally got there, they're like, oh, it's nice you got here. Can uh, we go to bed now? Yeah, it's something I definitely remember, that's for sure. Glad they stuck around for you and, and gave you a bit of a welcome. I'm sure it was a, <laughs> yeah. a nice sight coming in there to be done. Yeah, yeah, it was. When did you uh, start coming out and doing a little more travel? And uh, do, you, do you remember your first Canadian challenge? I do. Yeah, that was, boy, that was probably almost 20, over 20 years ago. The first time I've, I've only done the challenge twice. And I think it was like 98 or 99, those two years when I was there back to back. And uh, the first year I was there, I, uh, I got the Red Lantern. And then the second year I had some trouble and so I pulled out. But the irony of uh, my experience with the Canadian challenge is uh, contrary to what most mushers say, both times I was there, it was crazy warm. It was plus five, plus six. Um, half the time we were going over places where the snow had melted and we're going over grass and cross gravel roads. And I mean, it was just the way it was. Like I wasn't, uh, we weren't upset about it. It just, it just seemed so funny that uh, both of my experiences has been really warm there. And then Gen I never generally, went. Generally, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, generally very cold. Yeah, that seems to be the ones that uh, that I remember, you know, when I ask. Uh, you know, a couple episodes, Aaron Peck says the one that he remember was it was it was brutal cold. So I'm yeah. happy you got to experience one of the warmer years. Always get yeah. one of those every now and then. Yeah. The, the other racing that you've been involved in, uh, aside from the challenge, has been in 
your hometown race right there in, in Fort St. James, uh, the Caledonia Classic. Can you tell us about some of your experience running that one, maybe some of the more memorable runs you've had? Yeah, well, as you say, that's in my hometown. And, uh, you know, the Caledonia Classic, that is, uh, that's my that's my passion. That's, um, you know, being uh, one of the founding organizers of that race, and having it go for, you know, 25 years and, and being able to to keep a good crew that's worked with you all these years, it's, um, that's to me is, is the important part and just how the race has evolved. You know, in the beginning, you know, we, um, the very first year we had it, all we had is we had a 200 mile race. We had no layover, no checkpoints, no dog drops. It was 200 miles. You start this time, you get back, you rest when you want and whatever you need to do as a dog musher, you do. And I think that year, uh, Eddie Hopkins won that race. And, you know, since then, um, we've had a whole variety of changes in the race and uh, different mushers over the years, like William Cleden's won it, Sam Perino, Marcel's won it. You know, we've had uh, Cowboy Smith came down a couple times and raced it. And it's always fun for us to have those, um, those kind of, um, you know, lack of a better word, big name mushers come down and, and race it. So we started with... Um, with a 200 mile race. And, uh, then for, for a few years there, maybe eight or nine years, we had a three day stage race similar to what uh, used to be in Yellowknife, the 150. And so then we got some other, those other Yellowknife mushers would come down. Grant Beck would come down and uh, a couple of the other Becks would come and race too. Um, and typically they'd win it, but, uh, um, yeah, it's going to be a real sort of evolution of, of how we've got to what the race is today. So, you know, from myself, um, I've raced it so many times and also so many times I've been an official. So it's, it's kind of hard to, to say what's, what is a real memorable time for me. Um, you know, they almost all blur together, but I, I would say one of the best times we had was, um, I'm going to say probably 2015 or 16. There's a lot of teams in it and just, you know, um, at this race, I some years I, I'm an announcer. And so when the teams come up the lake, I'm on a PA system. I'm an announcing and those kind of things. And right where they come into town, there's an old, um, it's about 150-year-old church. And so seeing the dog teams come through there, the sun was coming up. And it was just almost a magical moment for me to, you know, all your work and everything you do. And you're just so happy to see so many dog teams in this historic you know, part of of the province, right? Because it is, you know, Hudson Bay Fort, right? The Hudson Bay came in 1806, so there's been that kind of history with with the community. It's been quite quite a quite a trip looking back on 25 years of putting this race together, and you know, the people that have have been there for the basically the entire time, like um, my my race partner um, Joanne Vintage, she's basically been there. I think she started year two into it. And she's been key at to helping us with our grant writing, our fundraising, and logistics. She's a real uh, event coordinator. Um, we've had the same um, trail boss for 25 years, Dave Burgess. He's helped us out forever. And then the other, um, the silent person who doesn't get a lot of credit, who's been there from the beginning and had to listen to me whine and complain and see me be very happy at times too, is my mother. She's been involved with the fundraising since the word go. And, you know, she's 81 years old, and this year, again, she's going to be out helping us with the fundraising. So, you know, those th- that's kind of what really makes me proud of this race. And the race has – it's turned into a 
it's a community event now. Um, some races you go to and they're fantastic. They're just different. They're isolated and they're great for the mushers and the few spectators. Our race is different. We, it's a community event. We have the school kids come out on the Friday and they watch the, uh, 200 mile and hundred mile teams take off on Saturday and Sunday. We have sprint races. We have kids races. Some years we've had the local politicians race, like the local chief and the local mayor race. And that's always kind of fun. And some days, some years we've had games where you make bannock and those kind of things. And the community expects it. They expect that it's going to happen every year in February. And they also support it. Um, the village, the uh, district of Fort St. James, they, you know, they lend us machines to plow the parking lot and set stuff up. Local businesses donate money and those kind of things to, to make the event happen. Yeah, it definitely takes a a team of people to 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 put on a race of any kind and the variety that you offer is is very interesting. I don't think there's another race certainly not one that I know of in Canada that offers mid-distance races as well as sprint in the same event. How long have you had the sprint and mid-distance races combined in a, in one event? They've probably been we've probably been doing the sprints for probably at least fifteen years now, maybe a little bit longer. Because um, what what happens is you know in a distance race the spectators come out they watch the teams go, and then they come back at three o'clock in the morning the next day, and the community wanted something more they wanted something to watch right, and so we tried to build the sprint community and uh, you know the sprinters and Prince George that come and Fraser Lake and and uh, we've got ski jores. A ski drawing event now too, which just gives more for the community to see. And uh, that really helps. It helps bring people together. And we also, it's also come a bit of a, a gathering time for families and people from outlying communities. They'll come in and they'll visit, you know, Uncle Bob and they'll come, oh, let's go watch the dog races for a while. And then we have a little campfire there that people go you know, visit and stuff. And it's, it's kind of a really neat atmosphere. And, and you know, that's from the community's perspective. Um, from a musher's perspective, it's um, it's an interesting course. So if I talk specifically about our our seven dog hundred mile race, and I'm gonna sort of talk about that one right now, just because like last year that was we had more teams in that race than, than the other teams. We had ten teams in that. We had seven in the two hundred, and then our sprint race is a four and six dog. I think we had eight in boach class, and I think we had three or four um, ski jaw races. So. That seven dog race has certainly become uh, the most popular race um, that we have here. And it's interesting because you've got to go 65 miles straight to the, the clubhouse and then you rest eight hours and then you have a 35 mile run back to town at the end of eight hours. But sometimes BC is funny here in Fort because the weather is just changes so radically. So some years it can be 30 below and some years like this past year is like zero and heavy wet snow coming down so you know when we get snow here and that heavy wet snow it really can accumulate fast so you can start to race and the trail's pretty good but you know two hours in you're plowing through three or four inches of heavy wet snow and that's that's tough on dogs that's tough um that's tough if you're not used to it if your dogs aren't trained hardy for that and it is a healier race we're not, for St. James here, it's not like mountains like you're going to see in Jasper or on the West Coast. It's um, it's definitely hilly. There are definitely mountains, but, you know, they're around five, 6,000 feet right, right here in town. And so the highest one, you're going to gain 
you get up to about almost 5,000 feet in this race and the lake level is 2,200 feet. So you do have, you have quite a bit of elevation up and down throughout the race. And that's, uh, that makes it's, it's what it is with the dogs is they have to learn if they're not familiar with the up and downs and the slows and stuff, it can be tough on their heads because they can't always get into a nice groove pace. Like, like if you got a 20 mile run on a lake for a while, they get into a rhythm. But this, you're up a hill, down a hill, around a corner, and then down a steep hill, up another hill. And it's harder for the dogs to get into a rhythm. But that's the uniqueness of the race. And so when those 100-mile guys get to, 100-mile teams get to the clubhouse, they have their eight-hour um, layover. And I just want to mention the clubhouse. The clubhouse is um, actually our local snowmobile club. And they, uh, they allow us to use their clubhouse for the weekend, and we use all of their facilities. It's fantastic. It's a new clubhouse. It's only about three years old. But the Snowmobile Club, just as a side note here, they've been with us for 25 years too. They, um, they groom the trails. They pack the trails. Even as a local musher training, as soon as the race is done, they groom them all up again for us. They'll phone me up and say, hey, where do you want this trail groomed, all those kind of things. So we have a fantastic relationship with our Snowmobile Club. And that helps, uh, it helps with make the race as good as we can, especially because you know yourself, when you're going to a race, you got to have a good trail. If you don't have a good base or whatever on that trail, people aren't going to come back and it's no fun for anybody. So we do our, our best to make sure that trail is solid. Yeah. And, and there's a limit to what's possible in, in the last days or during the race when you have larger snow events, as you mentioned, it's yeah. more of the, the work starting early and building a good base so that you have some structure underneath that is really critical in my mind. It's that post holing and, you know, dogs breaking through a crust that really causes injuries and tends to make mushers pretty apprehensive about going too far that I find. And so, yeah, you know, that, that work early in the, in the season to get snow packed and it's not just once or twice it seems to be a continuous thing or that that's our 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 approach here given that we are more flat maybe don't have the snow volume that you do but it just keeps blowing in drifting in on a regular basis so whether we get snow or not we seem to be out all the time is it similar for you guys or is it more of um, a reaction to to snowfall on the trail side we uh you know, we start smashing that trail in with the first snowfall. And so right in November, you're putting the trail in and you keep working on that trail. Um, I would say probably our guys are out there three days a week minimum. And they're an older group. There are most of them in their 70s. And they're, they got um, club snowmobiles and groomers and they're smashing that 100 miles of trail down. And they, yeah, it's, it happens on a regular basis. One thing that, uh, that is a huge, huge issue out here in, in our area for trails is we had um, we had a pine beetle epidemic, and so a lot of the trees died from the pine beetle, and it killed lots of trees. So there's often uh, trees knocked down by wind or snowfall, those kind of things across the trail. So when I'm training, I always have a chainsaw on my sled. So when I'm running my dog, there's always a chainsaw. We don't go anywhere without a chainsaw. And uh, I think two years ago in a hundred mile race, um, the first the first um, after the checkpoint, the first um, bunch of teams went out. They finished their eight hours. They went out, and then the slower teams went out. Bad luck. They had to go against a big, great big cottonwood tree that had come down. So they had to like basically lift their sleds and their dogs over this big tree. And um, nature, of the beast. Unfortunately, they got stuck in it where the other guys didn't. So that is a challenge for us here. 
we don't have the wind like you guys have, so our trails in the bush don't get blown over very much. Yeah, but it's, it still sounds like a lot of work on a regular basis. For anybody that does trail work, certainly knows the the continuous effort from first snowfall right up until race time to try and get yeah. a, a fantastic trail. And yeah. so that's the that's the, the, to me that's the tough part. Um, you know, it's not just a you know a, a once a month kind of deal. Now, is that trail used by uh, local mushers and snowmobilers? throughout the season or is it kind of left for the the race itself so the trail is used year round it's uh the snowmobile is also snowmobile atv club so it's used in the summer and mushers snowmobilers it's used all the time um ironically though uh, once you get you know four or five miles from the trailhead of the clubhouse um you hardly ever see anybody but of course you know we're usually training at night so um you don't tend to see uh, recreational snowmobilers out at night. So it's it's really good for us to training. And the other beauty is is it keeps it packed down. And some of our grooming has to be done because, you know, you get too many snow machines across. You know how the trail kind of gets bumpy and wavy. Yep. And so then we groom all those bumps out of it to try and make it as, as solid as possible. A little worried right now because the, uh, the bottom end of the trail is real close to a forest fire. So I hope it doesn't burn out because it's sure tough, uh, you know, keeping a trail open after it's been burnt yeah we've seen that in in previous years here as well the okay the yeah. fires really add to a lot of work to try and keep that trail open we're unfortunately not uh don't get a lot of use out of the the trail in in the surrounding time it seems to be more local traffic and okay. uh, not a lot of people training on it specifically just because of the remote nature and right uh, there's not a lot of locals along the trail so to speak and I can say, I think that's one of the advantages of where we have our trail is it does get a fair bit of use. And so it does make sure that it does have that really solid base. That uh, So even if you get that wet snow and that snow the night of during a race, the dogs, they're not going to bust a shoulder because they're going to hit something solid. Seven dog, 100 mile race. You yeah. also have a 10 dog, 200 mile race, which is also a Iditarod qualifier. So how's the trail differ for the 200 mile versus the 100 mile? Is it the same or portions of the, the same? Well, portions of it are same. Basically, they run on the same trail until the clubhouse, and then the uh, 10 dog 200 mile teams take off, and they go further sort of southwest, and they climb some more hills, and they kind of loop around and come back, and then they too rest at the clubhouse. But it's it's built with the same people, the same group. Um which is it, with with trails here, we have to like the route's not always exactly the same, and that depends on the reason we have to change it. Sometime if a road's been plowed for logging or or some other reason, so we might have to change it slightly. So we like to keep the course exactly the same every year. But this last year, it was um, a bit of a different course, and I think it ended up being about three miles shorter, just because we had some logging opened up on on part of the other other route, but. Um, it's still hilly and it's, um, it's, and it's actually more technical where we had to do it this year, sort of almost over some eskers that kind of steep up, steep down, some sort of sharp turns and those kind of things. And so it was a little more challenging for, uh, <clears throat> for some of the teams. Yeah, well, that's excellent. And I know that, um, that hundred mile race with seven dogs is turning out to be the, the popular option, which, uh, just before I forget to mention, you're going to be running from February 2nd to the 4th. So the first weekend in February, 
out of Fort St. James, which for those listening around the world that don't know where it is, about 350 miles straight north of Vancouver will get you there, but that's not how you're going to drive. So just to give you an idea of where it is, is that considered central BC then? Yeah, we're central. We're north central BC. Yeah. And then it's, it's a dead end road. We're off the main highway. And once you get to the fort, that's it. Right. And so, like I said, you have a 10 dog, 200 mile, I did a rod qualifier, a seven dog, 100 mile. And then on the sprint side, looks like a six dog, six mile, four dog, four mile. And then you have one uh, and two dogs, Gijor as well. So anybody looking to do some mid-distance racing or some sprint, uh, Fort St. James and the Caledonia Classic you can find their website and Facebook, I believe, use as well. It will be in the show notes below, so you can just check that out. We'll have links down there for you. And uh, they will be open for registration, so please give a chance to check them out or go by their website, Facebook, and see what they have to offer. Maybe you'll see a musher you know. And if you have any questions or they ha- need to get a hold of anybody, uh, Craig, any suggestions on how they do that? Is it Facebook the best option for you guys? Yeah, Facebook is great. Uh, a lot of people just uh, phone me directly too, or email me or text me. Of course, love the smaller races where it's just <laughs> you. I know you've got a huge team behind you with it, and I'm not going to ask you to name them because you'll miss someone, and we're not going to do that <laughs> yeah. today. Um, so I just want to mention for all those that help out, volunteer from the trail crew to everybody else. Um, you know, really appreciate all the work they do to help another Canadian race out. And uh, I'm sure Craig has lots of people he'll thank in in time, but we'll get there. Um, Before we go there, uh, I do want to ask our social media question, which comes from Deb Wes. And they're asking, if you could go back and tell your younger musher self one thing, what would it be? Honestly, that's quite simple. What I would say is when I started out is buy good line dogs. Buy good dogs. Don't mess around with breeding and getting too many dogs. Buy good dogs. It's worth it in the long run. Cheaper too. I can agree with that. Solid advice I've got from the from the beginning when I, when I got going. So, you know, you, you don't know what a good dog is until you have one, or a great <laughs> dog is until you have one. Was how yeah. it was worded for me. So, you know, that's a excellent suggestion. Um, so a little fast forward, uh, you're signed up, registered for the, uh, 200 mile for the Canadian challenge. And what, uh, what prompted you to come back to the challenge, you know, 20 years since your last visit? Well, a couple of things is, uh, over the years, we've had so many teams come from Saskatchewan, Alberta that race the challenge and they say a lot of good things about it. And, you know, they've supported our race all this time. And so we want to, um, you know, do the same, support what, what you guys are doing out there. And it seems like it's a lot different than from 25 years ago or 20 years ago when I ran it. So it's I'm like I'm, I'm, I'm a rookie at it, right? I don't really know much about it. So, and I like doing new races. I've, um, yeah, I've done a lot of variety of different kinds of races. Quite honestly, my biggest challenge for this race is uh, getting time off work. I haven't got it yet, so I'm hoping I can get it. Yeah, well, and and so you're a school principal, I believe. So yeah. can you, you tell us a little about how you manage uh, a full-time job and and having dogs and training and, and prepping for races and organizing a race? How do you 
how do you find time for it all? Well, it's not as difficult as it seems. So I basically, like a lot of people, I, uh, I work pretty much 12 hours a day and um, at different times. But when it comes to dog racing and race organization, it's such a passion and such an addiction that you always have energy and you always have time. It's, um, you know, you might come home from school and you're tired at six, seven at night and, you know, it's cold out and it's dark, of course. And you think, oh, I don't want to go train, but you go hitch up your dogs. And as soon as you pull your hook, you're in just heaven. It doesn't matter if it's a good run or bad run. You're just happy you're out there. And it's, it's that drive. It's that passion with the dogs that um, it, it makes it easy, actually, to, to keep everything going. Yeah, I agree. The time on the, on the runners certainly makes it all seem a lot more worthwhile. The other thing I'd mention about race organizing is that it's done over a very long period of time. You know, I, I know you guys have already started with uh, a lot of your preparation and, and meetings and whatnot. I think you start once the school year ends. So, I mean, it's it's summertime and everybody's going, starting to make decisions and organize. You know, if you had to do it all in a couple of weeks, it would be a disaster. But I think that's why it works out really well. You know, it's, it's a lot of time and, and certainly a lot of help um, to do that. So you mentioned some of your dogs. Um, can you tell us a little about, uh, your kennel, maybe, uh, how many dogs you have, or are there some dogs that, uh, you have now or, or had in your years of mushing that, that stand out or that you remember as some of the, maybe the, maybe not the best ones, but some that exceeded expectations. Yeah. So right now I've got, uh, I've got a kennel of 16 dogs. Um, six of them are retired. And so I'm training uh, 10 for, for the racing season this year. And of those 10, um, six, oh, um, four of them are yearlings. So it's kind of a, a newer team, obviously a very young team. And uh, I, um, I got a litter of pups that I bought from Jerry Joinson. And they're a bigger dog and longer haired, which I was looking for. Not quite as fast as um, some of the other dogs, but uh, a pretty hardy, tough dog. And so that's kind of where I am for this coming season. Um, you know, over the years, you've had so many good dogs, and uh, and it's, it's kind of hard to pick up one. But I would say I had, um, I bought this dog, and her name was Glacier. And she was a, uh, a little leader that I bought from somebody from a sprint team that just wasn't working out for them. And I remember when I raced Glacier, I had her for a couple of seasons, and the um, Grant Beck was racing that year. And it was day two of our stage race. And with Glacier in the lead, I was only two minutes behind Grant at day two. And so she was just incredible, that little dog, and what the drive she had. And I think, um, looking back now, she was too fast for my team. She was too driven and too fast for the dogs that were behind her. And uh, so we, um, in the end, we ended up, uh, we never obviously never beat Grant because we just could, we couldn't keep up that pace. And I realized it. And so I had to slow her and the whole team down just to make sure nobody got injured over around the dogs. But definitely she was a dog that stands out in my mind. It's always amazing. I, I, I mean, it's dogs. Just love dogs myself, of course. But it's the stories about a dog that didn't necessarily fit what its life may have looked like, uh, you know, when it was born. And mm -hmm. this, you know, sprint to distance dog transition seems to be 
used by uh, across the board to me. You know, you're certainly not the first person to do it. And I, I believe there have been some bigger names that have taken sprint um, dogs that maybe didn't work out for one reason or another or needed a home and, and turned out quite well. So it's, it's amazing how they can adjust to, to the demand um, at the time. So, you know, I, I like the stories about dogs doing exceeding expectations. You know, um, we've had a few uh, stories in past episodes about, you know, trouble in a race. Yeah, you know, was running out of leaders and then we just had nobody was working. So we just threw this dog up there and they, they, they just out of nowhere, you know, decided to take the team on. So have you had any uh, experience like that in your in your racing time? Yeah, actually I have. I had this um, this dog, Scotty. And Scotty was actually, um, I'd bred him, and he had quite a bit of pointer in him. And that's, but he had, he had pointer, but he had a really good undercoat. And I used him lots in sort of swing and those kind of things. And then I was racing in, um, I think, 215 or 216. I did the Hudson Bay Quest. And he was just as one of my will dogs. And coming back in, the last 50 miles or so, so my dogs were tired and struggling. And, well, let's try Scotty. So put Scotty up front there. And who knows? Boom. He just got into his groove. And then, obviously, he finished us through the race, and we did okay. And then I raced him probably every race for the next five years. And he always was in lead, you know. And, yeah, he was quite the dog. Yeah, as as um, Aaron Peck mentioned a few episodes ago, that that decision or uh, alteration in their location on the team or their role in the team is bred out of necessity. You know, yeah. if anybody could have predicted that Scotty was going to be a great leader, you would have had him up there long before. I'm sure you weren't yeah. trying to hold him back anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's just amazing to me how they, they managed to step up to – um, you know, whatever seems to be thrown at them. And the really good and, ones know, seem to just do it effortlessly. And from that experience of having Scotty shine like that is now I um, I run every dog in lead when I'm training. I switch this dog that everybody gets a chance up front. So, I mean, of course, they're not all great leaders, but everybody can run out front in my kennel more or less. And so if you're stuck in a race or you're stuck out there, they'll get you back to your truck. Yeah, that's not a bad approach, actually. You know, give them a chance to get up there and understand that this is what uh, this is what we do here on this team, and everybody gets a shot. And then you don't have to guess during a race or take a chance on something. So, given that yeah. you started mushing at a very young age, been involved with dogs for a long time, uh, and and raced quite extensively, do you have any advice or suggestion for you know? Let's maybe make it a two parter with people that are adults trying to get interested in doing it, what you might suggest for them and perhaps anyone who has younger uh, kids that, that they might be interested in doing this, what might you tell them or, or suggest for them? Well, what I would say is um, I'll go to the second part of your question first about the kid is the kid should work with another kennel. I think that's one of the smartest thing to do. Um, a family shouldn't go out and buy a bunch of dogs they should work with a kennel, find somebody um, they can work with. And that may not be possible if they live in different communities, uh, but have some kind of mentor that will help them get through um, because then they really know if they're serious about it and if they want to continue on. I think that's a good way to start. 
if you're an adult, you've got a few more resources and those kind of things to 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 get dogs. Is I would suggest that the adult get a variety of mentors because you know, as an adult, your time is different and this kind of thing, and you, and you um, you're you're you may have different terrain than the mentor who's telling you, and you may not have quite the goals of the one mentor, and they may get disappointed if you don't follow. But if you have a variety of people who can give you advice and you sincerely think about it, what's going to work for you, that to me is a really good, good method to become a successful dog musher. Well, I think that's excellent advice. It also opens the people up to a little bit more variety because there are lots of options for dog sports, not just uh, you know, running hundreds of miles in races, yeah. but everything from the the sprint races that that you guys have as well, mid distance, uh, as well as recreational teams, ski joring, bike joring, etc. That lots of this stuff can be done with your your pet that might be at home on the couch right now. Um, so some of them are very capable, and I think there's a lot of growth in that part of the uh, of the sport. Can you tell people a little about the skijoring that you have? Is it a, a a relatively short trail? Are you on a lake that's flat, or is it a little bit through the mountains for the skijor side? Uh, our skijor side is all in the lake. It's uh, it's a four mile course. It's two miles out. You do a teardrop loop, and then you come back. Mostly on this on this basically the same trail. And um, one thing when you do our sprint races is we have quite a high podium, and we have spotting scopes. So the spectators get a play-by-play of what's happening out on the trail. And so with the ski jores, um, same thing. We can see how the dogs are doing, how the musher's doing, and if somebody's passed or somebody's fallen, and, and it's all kind of um, passed on to everybody in the spectating the sport, the, the race. Yeah, well, that's, that's wonderful. And I encourage anyone who's interested in dog sports or dog mushing at all, just reach out to someone, find someone in your area, look on Facebook or whatever it is, get in touch with someone and just ask questions. I'm sure they'd be more than happy to help you. And, uh, that maybe they can't help you. They can put you in touch with someone that can. And I think it's those little things that help people get involved and, uh, seem to get hooked on the excitement that happens. So, um, before we close out today, uh, we know it takes, uh, a lot of people to, to have a, a dog kennel and, and race dogs. Is there anyone or, or a group of people you'd, you'd like to thank in terms of your own, your own kennel on making this happen? Wow. That list is so huge in the fort. The support, <laughs> the support I get, I, I probably get more, sub, more support than the average musser. I got a friend who always fixes my sled. I got people making trails. Um, my son, he's always, he's, uh, not at home anymore. He's at university, but for years he was just a soldier helping me with everything and racing himself. So a big shout out to my son, Sean, and definitely a big, um, thanks to, um, my partner, Britta. She, uh, has dogs and we kind of share the workload with the feed and, uh, poop shoveling and all those kind of things. And, you know, it's like, like I say, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate as a musher to have the help that I do. And I think that's why, um, that's part of the reason I enjoy it so much is because of the help and the people that, uh, that I meet along the way. Yeah, it really is a wonderful community. I, I'm yet to find another sport where people can be ruthlessly competitive, <laughs> but at the same time would drop their race, would quit their race to help someone 
would give them anything, would answer a question, right? Like I keep comparing this to hockey, that if your mm. uh, opponent broke their only hockey stick, how many teams are like, oh, no, you can use mine? Right. Never, right? It, it, it's unheard of. But in mushing, someone breaks a sled or whatever. It's like, oh, no, I got an extra. Go, go ahead. It's no problem. Or answer questions about how they do things or what their process is, what they're feeding, what they're training like. It seems to be an open book across the community and there's lots to learn. And, and it seems to be very, you know, friendly competitive, I guess right. I, I might put yes. it that way. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, um, you know, I really appreciate the, uh, the time today to, to join me and tell us about uh, your dogs and, and your racing and, and certainly the, the Caledonia Classic. We, we really love uh, helping out other Canadian races here in the West. So, like I said, we'll have the information down below in case you're interested in checking it out. Is there uh, anywhere that people can find you specifically, Craig, in case they want to follow along in your uh, racing season this year? Um, I don't actually have a, any social media stuff that I post things to at all, unfortunately. I just just go about my business and sign up for a race and hopefully I get there. Okay, well, we'll just bug later on in the year and see if you can't post some stuff through the, the Caledonia Facebook page and uh, get some fun out there. I know people love uh, pictures of the dogs and hearing stories about the dogs. So again, always well, a pleasure. We'll definitely post our, uh, we have a big um, fall camp out where the teams come and train. And then January 1st, we have a New Year's doggy do race and that'll be posted on our site too. Excellent. So I want people to go and check it out. Caledonia Classic, Fort St. James, BC. And uh, Craig, thanks so much. Appreciate the time uh, telling us all about it. And from all of us here at the Canadian Challenge, thanks so much. I want to thank our main sponsor, Adventure Destinations, Thompson Resort in Mississippi and Baldwin Feeds for all their support of the race. And uh, looking forward to seeing everyone in February 2024. That's it for today. And goodbye.